Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. This is Romans 15, 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This, um, this passage that we're going through today is, um, I think, like the last theological, maybe doctrinal passage in in Romans. since so we have two more weeks, but next week has to do with Paul and his reflections on his mission and wanting to go to Spain and, and kind of a, a redo of one of the first messages talking about Paul and his relationship with the Romans, but how he got there and what God's called him to. And then the last week of the series is a benediction and has to do with Paul's relationship with the individuals in the church. And, uh, and so this passage is kind of the last like theology one. And, and since chapter 12, we've been in this section of Romans that's talking about how the gospel working inwardly on us changes things outwardly, and it's primarily relationships, so it changes how we, um, how we see ourselves and how we feel about ourselves and treat ourselves. That's where it started, and then how we, how we see and treat the people that are close to us and how we see tr- treat the people that are at odds with us, how we see and treat the authorities over us, how we see and treat the people that like, really have a tough time getting along with, and all those things move towards like unity like he's trying to get us to as much unity as we can muster and that's what the gospel should do is it's about the gospel is about reconciliation between us and God but that should be lead to reconciliation in all areas of our lives and and um I thought that in in you know in a lot of ways it makes a lot of sense just in the bigger picture of things that when they asked Jesus what's the most important thing he said love God and love others and I could look at Romans and just a big picture thing and think, that's kind of it. You know, he starts Romans and says, well, you can't love God because you love yourself in the wrong way and too much. And, like, you're addicted to that. And, and so then he, and so he spends a couple chapters telling us that. And then he spends a couple chapters telling us about how much God loves us in spite of all that, you know. And the, the nature of God's love for us. And so um, while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. And where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. It super abounds. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate you from the love of God for you that is in Christ Jesus. And so he goes into this love that God has for you and how crazy it is. And then because of that love that God has for you, you're able now to love the people um, around you. And you can love anybody, uh, including yourself and your family and your church and your classmates and your neighbors and the people that drive you crazy separate from your family that drives you crazy and the people that you think are total morons. You can love all those people because of the love that God has for you. And so this last little passage um, is it's kind of strange and the commentaries didn't have great consensus on this and his language starts out like reverts almost so he says he, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak um, which just kind of sounds like a jerk you know like we who are strong have an obligation to deal with the failings of those weaklings and not to please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ didn't please himself but as it's written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, which is a quote from Psalm 69. And so, so last week was dealing with the weak and the strong. So in some ways, this is tagging on to that or concluding it. And so the, the, the strong were, the, I think, the people that were further along in the gospel, and the weak were people that were newer in it. And so they felt like there's still some things that they have to do to get God's approval, some law things they're holding on to. And the stronger the people that are past that, but it's, this passage seems kind of harsh and he sounds like a jerk and there's an obligation and we have to bear up with their failings because they're so weak. And don't please yourself. Don't have any fun uh, because Jesus didn't have any fun. He didn't please himself. And that just sounds a lot like church, you know, like, uh, and so it, it's like, for a minute, you're like, did we go through all this grace just to end up at law? <laughs> like, the bait and switch type thing. Um, just be like Jesus, the end. Uh, and I don't think that's it. But I don't know. I, I, think, I, don't, I think he, I don't know if he wants us there or not. It's just where I ended up. So um, how many of you ever wore a, a what would Jesus do bracelet? And you could still wear this. This is not, I'm not cracking on that. My kids, my dad gave my kids a ton of what would Jesus do, and that's like a great, you want your kid to wear that, but I remember what would Jesus do when it became a popular thing, probably in the 80s or 90s, um, and before that, has anybody read the what would Jesus do book? Does anybody know there was a book? How many people have read the book? It's called In His Steps, it's by a guy named Charles Sheldon, it was written in like the late 1800s, I thought it was written in like the 70s, but I looked it up this week, and, um, and I, the what would Jesus do thing kind of always like, it's good, but it just maybe is a bit legalistic. And even wearing the bracelet became something you have to do. You know what I mean? Like, Jesus likes you more if you're wearing his bracelet, which I think is not a gospel-y type thing. And um, if you know the Charles Sheldon was the guy that wrote, how many of you know the name Walter Rauschenbusch? Anybody? You had to geek out to know this name. What did he do? He is a social gospel guy. So in the late 1800s, um, the church split. There was like this higher criticism of scripture that said we can't really believe it and this like bias against calling people sinners and some psychological stuff that it was gonna, that's where it started. Is, and so 
And so that's where you had a split in the church between the social gospel and the fundamentalists. And the fundamentalists were like, well, there's some fundamental things that we have to believe. I don't think that started as all bad now. It means all sorts of things. But in the beginning, in the social gospel, people was, we just need to be nice, and we don't need to worry about sin. Katie was talking about, um, where's Katie? About, uh, about her aunt and a Catholic priest, and she was worried about her salvation. So the Catholic priest said, well, are you like, do you, are you nice? She's like, well, I'm, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. He's like, well, you're fine then. <laughs> you know, like, and uh, that's, the, that's where social gospel thinking, just be nice and just avoid sin. But they split, and it was Walter Rauschenbusch who was the social gospel guy. And I read this week that he attributes his thinking to Charles Sheldon's in his steps, what would Jesus do? So it just can get to like a legalistic, let's just be nice, and, and that's it. And the whole first paragraph feels like that to me, and it's a little bit exhausting. Um, so I put a, I linked a sermon in the weekly this week from a guy in New York named John Tyson, who's an Australian guy. He's great. Church of the City, New York. I listen to him now and again. And it was about discipleship and spiritual formation, and, and he had three like big points, but one of them was about how being, being versus doing and how we're doers and not beers. And he read this quote. Then I looked up, and I'm going to read an extended version of it that gets into this just exhaustedness. He said, one of the most obvious characteristics of our daily lives is that we're busy. We experience our days as filled with things to do, people to meet, projects to finish, letters to write, calls to make, and appointments to keep. Our lives often seem like overpacked suitcases bursting at the seams. In fact, we're almost always aware of being behind schedule. There's a nagging sense that there are unfinished tasks, unfulfilled promises, unrealized proposals. There's always something else that we should have remembered, done, or said. There are always people we didn't speak to, write to, or visit. Thus, although we are very busy, we also have a lingering feeling of never really fulfilling our obligations. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being, that describes me to a T, and 1 being, yeah, I don't really get that. Like, where do you put yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I want to think I'm like a, I don't know, a 7 or an 8 or something like that. Um, if you're in the 1 to 3 camp, good, good job. Um, we were, we were um, I was talking to, um, to Matt and Chris Friday night. And I think they were asking about sermons or something like that. And I said, yeah, every Friday, I just have to admit that I failed and put it down and lament. And that's not it. It's just the idea that any preacher is going to take God's word and make it better. You know, like, this is kind of an impossible thing. And, um, and the perfectionist in me comes out in these things. And at some point, you just have to say, my favorite sermon quote is a guy named Sam Albury that said, pastors don't finish sermons, they abandon them, hoping what is heard is better than what is said. And that is 100% true. Um, and so it's just a not enough. But I also have to, like, think about my list for the week and think I didn't get, I didn't get it all done. And it's, like, that sense is just um, who, who we are. You know, like, it's, it's our culture. And common. He goes on, more enslaving than our occupations are our preoccupations. To be preoccupied means to fill our time and place long before we're there. This is worrying in the more specific sense of the word. It's a mind filled with ifs. We say to ourselves, what if I get the flu? What if I lose my job? What if my child's not home in time? What if there's not enough food tomorrow? What if I'm attacked? What if a war starts? What if the world comes to an end? What if? 
All these ifs fill our minds with anxious thoughts and make us wonder constantly what to do and what to say in case something should happen in the future. Much, if not most, of our suffering is connected with these preoccupations. They prevent us from feeling a real inner freedom. While we're busy with many things, he kind of changes this a little bit. While we're busy with many things, we wonder if what we do makes any real difference. Life presents itself as a random and unconnected series of activities and events over which we have little or no control. While running from one event to the next, we wonder in our innermost selves if anything is really happening. While we can hardly keep up with our many tasks and obligations, we're not so sure that it would make any difference if we did nothing at all. While people keep pushing us in all directions, we doubt if anyone really cares. In short, while our lives are full, we feel unfulfilled. You want to take any guesses when this was written? You can kind of pick it up. Like, he talks about writing a letter instead of writing an email. You worry about your kid got the flu instead of if they got COVID. Any guesses? 1981. 1981. It was Henry Nouwen, um, who's great, a book called Making All Things New. Uh, that feeling for sure bleeds into our spiritual activity, you know. Um, I think I mentioned this last week. A book has come out called The Great Dechurching, and it's about 40 million Americans leaving the church in the last, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. And the number they surveyed a representative sample and the number one reason that people stopped going to church is that they physically moved <laughs> and so they just didn't have the energy or deem it important enough or whatever to like re-engage with um, a church like just too busy overwhelmed lazy whatever to find a church um, we got talking in staff meeting about and it was like for us this sense of like, um, I really, yeah, I really ought to do X, whatever. But it'd be easier if I didn't. But if I think about it, I know it'd be better if I did. But it sure feels like I just can't do anything else right now. Does that make sense? Like that feeling? How many of you had that feeling this morning before you came to church? All right, well, good job. Uh, um but that's it. Like, it'd be easier just to stay at home and have a lazy morning and make breakfast and whatever. Um, but I know, like, most of the time, it's really worth it when I do. It can be the last Sunday night in the church birthday and business meeting. It can be a home group or a Bible study. It can be uh, volunteering or signing up to volunteer for something. It can be reading my Bible or just quieting myself and, you know, spending some time praying to the Lord or worshiping, and all this stuff, I think, ties together. Um, and so Paul's opening paragraph here feels like it's like he's just piling onto that, like obligation and people that are failing and reproach and denying yourself, and even the Jesus part feels like he's piling on. Okay, but he goes on. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so the whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, I think is alluding to, he just quoted Psalm 69, and he's about to quote some Old Testament passages about the Gentiles. But then he says, through endurance and encouragement, we might have hope. 
So he layers onto it endurance, like the need to keep going, and encouragement. Um, you know, in the midst of those preoccupations, the what ifs, the things that we are so easy to wake up in the morning and, or in the middle of the night and think, like, boom, what if that happened? Like someone to give us courage, to end, to fill us with courage, encourage us, and hope, to give us hope that it all really does matter. Like, that it's, there's a point to it, to all the activity, you know. So as I was, I was studying the passage, I re, this is repeated in the next couple of verses. Um, and I thought, how many of us could use a healthy dose of endurance and encouragement and hope into the desert of that busyness and all this effort that we're not sure is paying off? Endurance and encouragement and hope um, sure seem like what we need. And... Uh, and I can think through, you know, just a lot of individual situations um, that people share with me in the room. I can just think of some folks, some friends, like it's just stuff that seems to go on forever. Where we, we know God's in it, but this is what we need, um, is God to, is to see us through it. And he goes on and says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he adds something to it. He says, the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. Another translation says, the God who gives endurance and the God who gives encouragement. Like, this is who God is. Is the God that gives us these things. Um, and so he's going to in a few verses, he goes through this thing about the Gentiles. And he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant of the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Like this is a long time coming in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So again, the Jewish church has a lot of, or the Roman church has a lot of Jewish people that became Christians and non-Jewish people, which is Gentiles that became Christians. And, um, and so he's speaking to both of them. But this, I think, is apart from that. So he quotes these Old Testament passages, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Again, it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. That's Jesus. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And so this is the story of the Old Testament, that God came to Abraham and said, Hey, we're going to fix the problem. I'm going to bless you and your family, but through you I'm going to bless the whole earth. So you are the Jewish people, but then the Gentile people, everybody else is going to get blessed through you. And like the Jews kind of lost the plot on that and thought the blessing, they were a lake and not a river. Like the blessing didn't flow through them. It stopped at them because they'd taken it on the chin from the Gentiles for 1,500 years. And so when Jesus came and blessed everybody, that was a little, that caught him off guard, you know, but it shouldn't have because that's what God said was going to happen the whole time. But 1,500 years is a long time. Like if you keep say, make a promise and take 1,500 years to fulfill it, like, people can be forgiven for wondering if you're going to come through on that thing. But that's what he's saying, like, this is God. God's got a lot of time. It may take 1,500 years. God is a God of endurance. He can endure, and he can give you endurance. He's not in a rush. God doesn't pull out a stoplight and pull out his phone because his brain can't sit still. He's not like us, you know? Um, and so what he did... What's written in the scriptures give us hope that he's going to do that again. 
Like, he, he gives us endurance, and he gives us encouragement. And so in that story, in the patriarchs, um, one of my favorite parts of Genesis is just Abraham, that Abraham, you know, he makes this promise, and in uh, and, and Abraham 75, he says, I'm going to give you a, a kid, but the kid doesn't come until he's 100. And I thought, if you're 25 and someone says you're going to have a kid, like, wait until 50 seems like a long time, but if you're 75, it probably seems like twice as long because you're already way past when you should be able to have a kid. And, and, but, and God, like every other page or every page in the Bible shows up and has like a one-on-one with Abraham in weird ways, you know, but I, th- I thought about that once. I'm like over 25 years, he shows up like five times. That's probably every five years. And when you're putting everything on the line, every five years probably doesn't seem like enough. So every five years he shows up to Abraham and says, how's it going? And Abraham's like, well, not great, really. Like, I know you said this thing is going to happen, but it's turned, this is a mess. You know, one time it's like my nephew that you told me to bring with me went off the rails and I like had to go chase him down so he didn't get killed and I had to kill some people, so I don't know. And another time um, it was like, I don't know if you just forgot to send, make it rain, like literally make it rain, but I had to go down to Egypt and the, the uh, king of Egypt had the hots for my wife, so I said she was my sister and I don't think that was a good decision, like in hindsight, you know. And my wife doesn't really think that you're going to come through on this whole thing, and uh, the baby, so she had me sleep with her maid, and that has been a train wreck, and I don't really know how to fix it, you know? And I'm sure he says, like, or thinks, like, I wasn't even sure you were still paying attention, because I haven't heard from you in, like, five years, you know? And God, every time, is like, oh, yeah, just, man, hold on, you're doing great, like, is this, we're still doing this thing? I know it doesn't make sense. I know it feels like it's taken forever, but we're on track. Just keep trusting me. Just keep moving forward. You know, one time he's like, look at the stars in the sky. Like every time you look at the stars in the sky, remember um, that your descendants are going to be like that. That's my promise. Or look at the, the sand on the beach. Like every time you see that sand, remember that's what, this is happening. Um, or one time he like, you know, affirms or solidifies the covenant with them. It says, remember this, because I'm here. May the God of endurance and encouragement, and then he says, grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Grant you. Like, that's not something, it's not get your act together and get this thing done and get along and meet your obligations and put up with those people or your life is going to stink. Like, it's God's going to finish the work that he started. God's going to grant you that. Um, The endurance and encouragement and the hope isn't going to come from you getting your act together, but from you drawing near to the God who loves you and is the source of endurance and encouragement and hope and harmony. The thing we're obligated to is something he's going to give us. It's a gift. At the end of this passage, he says that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may have hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so I don't think it's do better, try harder. It's, it's drawn nearer. Uh, I think in that first part, the obligations to bear with the failings of the weak and be like Jesus part, he isn't, what he's saying is like, this isn't, this isn't optional. It's not advice. It's the standard that we're made for. It's the vision of the church. It's, it's what we're not settling for less than. It's the hope of the world 
But then he's saying, you can't get there yourself, and God knows that. And so the God of endurance and the God of encouragement, and later he'll say at the end, he'll say the God of hope, he's the way to get you there. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. I am, I am the way. I am the way. Um, and so that's, that's it. So may he grant you to live in such harmony. Uh, and then at the end of that, to so that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of, our, of, of Jesus. And Jesus, at the end, before he goes to the cross, um, you know, after the Last Supper, as he's praying, says this, I do not ask, he's praying, Father, I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their, their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Like, that's his prayer, that the church would have this harmony, and people would look at the church and think, that must be where God is, for those people to love each other the way they do. Like, that's not normal. Um, and in this passage, backing up a few verses, he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And all of Romans is about how Christ has welcomed us. And it's what enables us to welcome each other. And so all those passages about while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, and the wages of our sin is death in a relationship, but the gift that God gives us is life. Uh, that the more we would think about the mercy that he's shown us, the more our hatred and contempt and disdain and impatience for those around us, even for ourselves, would melt away. Because it doesn't make um, sense for us to hold on to those things when he hasn't. When Christ has been enough uh, for him, that he wouldn't be enough for us in the relationships with the people around us. So he doesn't want some legalism to characterize your relationship with Jesus. Like, yeah, there is a way that things are supposed to be, and we're not there, but if we think that's on us, then what do we do? We avoid him. Um, that would be the definition of grace plus law. So we either ditch God or we ditch the standard and think, well, we can't meet that, which is what the Catholic priest did, you know? So, like, let's just not worry about it. Or we draw near to God and get more gospel and depend on God to become the people that he created us to be. Um, in that Henry Nouwen quote, he said, thus, although we were very busy, we also have a lingering feeling of never really fulfilling our obligations. Which is this sense of like being disappointed with ourselves or thinking that everybody around us is disappointed with us and ultimately thinking that God is disappointed with us. And so I don't, you don't have to answer this out loud, but do you, like, if you think about it, do you think God is disappointed with you? I'm pretty sure I'm good in saying he's not. 
this, um, this was another quote from this Brandon Manning book. He says, um, one morning at prayer, I heard this word, little brother, I witnessed a Peter who claimed he didn't know me, a James who wanted power in return for service to the kingdom, a Philip who failed to see the Father in me, and scores of disciples who were convinced that I was finished when I was on the cross at Calvary. The New Testament has all sorts of examples of men and women who started out well and then faltered along the way. Yet on Easter night, I appeared to Peter. James ultimately isn't remembered for his ambition, but for his sacrifice of his life for me. Philip didn't see the Father in me when I, or did see the Father in me when I pointed the way. And the disciples who despaired had enough courage to recognize me when we broke bread at the end of the road to Emmaus. My point, little brother, is this. I expect more failure from you than you expect from yourself. This passage, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have it right. Like I said, the commentaries were kind of all over the place. I think the language, if you can look at different translations, like obligation at the beginning can be an ought to, and maybe that feels a little bit more like it. I think back and think I might have written it differently than he did, but it does feel like it moves from law and then to grace, and then, and like, but grace with some law, and then just grace. Um, let God grant you to become like Jesus. Let the power of the Holy Spirit empower you. May the God of endurance and encouragement and hope give you endurance and hope and encouragement in the work that Christ is doing in you um, because it's not going to happen overnight. The gospel's not the get-out-of-jail-free pass. It's not fire insurance. It's not God's going to change you overnight. It's not God likes you more than everybody else now because you're wearing a WWJD bracelet. That's not it. The gospel is your ticket home. It's your ticket to the place you've always belonged, the God who's always been madly in love with you, and the people that you're meant to be with. Now and later in this thing says this, one way to express the spiritual crisis of our time is to say that most of us have an address, but we cannot be found there. We know where we belong, but we keep being pulled away in many directions as if we were still homeless. All these other things keep demanding our attention. They lead us far, so far from home that we eventually forget our true address. That is the place where we can be addressed. Jesus responds to this condition of being filled yet unfulfilled, very busy yet unconnected, all over the place and yet never at home. He wants to bring us to the place where we belong. But his call to live a spiritual life can only be heard when we're, when we're willing honestly to confess our own homelessness and worrying existence, and recognize its fragmenting effect on our daily life. Only then can a desire for our true home develop. It's of this desire that Jesus speaks when he says, do not worry, set your hearts on his kingdom first, and all these other things will be given to you. Set your hearts on his kingdom, and all this other stuff is going to get taken care of. When we were talking in staff meeting about Sunday night, and the birthday and business meeting, the thing that we we all kind of agreed was the greatest thing about it was um, at the end when we prayed, Katie and Becky's former stepmom, which is great because she comes down here on the regular to visit them as their former stepmom. Um, and she didn't share anything during the time. She just prayed when we opened it up for people to pray. And like almost in tears prayed, there's so much love here. These people love each other so well. 
And um, in staff meeting, like, it's, our, it's kind of our job to deal with the things that we want to be better. You know what I mean? The problems. And we all thought maybe, like, the thing that God wants for us the most is the thing that we have that we don't, that we overlook. And maybe that's true in a lot of different areas of our life. That um, the thing that God thinks is most important is, but we just, it's right in front of us, but we don't see it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's his last word in this section. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Um, uh, Katie and Kelly can come back up here. I have one more story I'm going to read. We're going to take communion um, after this or offer you the chance to... um, to take communion, and in that we're recalling uh, Jesus' body that's been broken for us. Um, and his blood that's been shed for us to do everything necessary to restore us to perfect fellowship with our Father who's in heaven, who loves us. And he tells a story towards the end of this book. Um, about the love of Jesus for us that I think is disarming. So he talks about visiting, uh, I think, a friend, an Amish friend, 82-year-old guy who has four adult children, um, one of whom helps him tend the farm, and three of whom are disabled in some way, and I think they're um, Downs, like Down syndrome folks. So he says he shows up, and the second child is a 47-year-old um, named Elam. So he says, I arrived at noon with two friends, little Elam, who's about four feet tall, heavy set, thickly bearded, and wearing the Amish, the black Amish outfit with the circular hat, was coming out of the barn some 50 yards away, pitchfork in hand. He had never laid eyes on me in his life, yet when he saw me step out of the car, this little Downs man, dropped the pitchfork, ran lickety-split in my direction. Two feet away, he flung himself at me, wrapped his arms around my neck, his legs around my waist, and kissed me on the lips with a fierce intensity for a full 30 seconds. He says, well, I was temporarily stunned and terribly self-conscious, but in the twinkle of an eye, Jesus set me free from propriety. I buried my lips into Elam's and returned his kiss with the same enthusiasm. Then he jumped down, wrapped both of his hands around my right arm, and led me on a tour of the farm. A half hour later, Elam Elam sat next to me at lunch. Midway through the meal, I turned turned around to say something. Inadvertently, my right elbow slammed into his ribcage. He didn't wince. He didn't groan. He wept like a two-year-old child. His next move undid me. He came over to my chair, planted himself on my lap, and kissed me even harder on the lips. Then he kissed my eyes, my nose, my forehead, and my cheeks. And there was Brennan, dazed, dumbstruck, weeping. And suddenly, and he used this, he used this language earlier that he found in a, um, that people didn't, and I think particularly in, in African-American churches in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they didn't talk about being saved or being born again. Their language for coming to know Jesus was being seized by a great affection. That was their language. 
And so he says, here was Brennan, dazed, dumbstruck, and he's Brennan, and weeping, suddenly seized by the power of a great affection. In his utter simplicity, little Elam Zook was an icon of Jesus. Why? Because at that moment, his love for me didn't seem to stem from any attractiveness or lovability of mine. It was not conditioned by any response on my part. Elam loved me, whether I was kind or unkind, pleasant or nasty, his love arose from a source outside of himself and myself as often happens in a profound moment like that. Um, I'll recall a line from a book I'd read earlier discussing the tragic history of Native Americans. The author noted that the Iroquois Indians attributed divinity to Down's children and gave them an honored place in the tribe and treated them as gods. In their unselfconscious freedom, they were a transparent window, he puts, into the heart of Jesus Christ, who loves us as we are and not as we should be in a state of grace or disgrace, beyond caution, boundary, regret, or, or breaking point. So when we take communion, that's the love he has for us. And that's what we remember. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope.